This is America on the Road, named best radio show by the International Automotive Media Conference, and now in its 27th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. Many experts have suggested that electric cars will be less trouble-prone and need less service than conventional gasoline cars. But a new study from Consumer Reports says, well, maybe not. We'll have our thoughts on all this coming up, including the thoughts of an expert on uh, electric cars, Matt Lorenzo, who's with us. Is there a silent majority of top car company execs that believes that pursuing electric vehicles to the exclusion of conventional vehicles is a giant mistake? Well, one prominent global executive certainly thinks so. We'll tell you who that is and what he believes and why he believes it coming up. I'm sure Matt will have some comments on that, too. And there is controversy and confusion over the new EV tax credits, and it's continuing. Now the government has announced that it won't have the new rules in place for months. I think March is the time they will come out with these. What's going to happen in three months? What the heck? Uh, We'll give you the details and talk about that, what it could mean to you. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at DrivingToday.com slash auto insurance. That's DrivingToday.com slash auto hyphen insurance. Need a hyphen in there, Matt. I am Jack Neared. With me is guest host Matt DiLorenzo. Uh, If you're watching this on YouTube, that's his smiling face. Matt is an automotive expert. Uh, Chris, unfortunately, Chris Teague, our uh, normal co-host, I think he's normal, he's six feet tall, that's normal, had a pre-Christmas medical emergency in his household. I'm hopeful that it's not uh, a major emergency. It doesn't sound like it, but Matt has stepped in and he's done this several times before. Matt, as you know, you are the author of a terrific new book. It's called How to Buy an Affordable Electric Car, A Tightwad's Guide to EV Ownership. Matt, I am welcoming you officially into the show. Thanks for being with us. We, I appreciate <laughs> it. Thanks for having me on, Jack. It's, it's great, as always, to be here. Well, we will talk about EVs in the show. Matt will be our special guest for a special segment later in the show. We were doing some uh, preliminary discussion on that before we went on the air, and I think you'll find this an interesting discussion. Uh, Matt, you also have a uh, very cool vehicle that's uh, kind of underrepresented out there. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about the Volkswagen Arteon, which is a uh, like one of the last full-size family cars left on the market. So uh, it's an interesting story. Right, and I will be road testing the 2023 Acura Integra, one of the zootier forms. I drove it in Southern California for a week, so... Uh, that's coming up. Before we do anything else, though, we'll be bringing you some of the most important auto-related news from around the world. So stay with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Matthew Lorenzo, Jack, and Red back with you. We're so glad you're with us. Thanks so much for being with us on America on the Road. And I'm so happy to have Matt Lorenzo pinch-hitting for Chris Teague uh, today. He does a marvelous job. And Wow, this one's right up your alley, Matt. Uh, this news report, this is from uh, Consumer Reports, and they've been doing a survey, and they have found, uh, maybe counterintuitively, <laughs> or certainly counter to what we've been told, that uh, the recent EVs out on the marketplace are somewhat more trouble-prone rather than less trouble-prone than conventional vehicles. What's your take on that? Well, I think there there may be some truth to this. Uh, you know, um, you don't have the expense of the normal maintenance like oil changes, cooling uh, changes, things like that. But electric vehicles are very complicated electronic devices. And we know from 
everything from cell phones to uh, high-tech TVs, they're not all trouble-free. And when something goes wrong, it's really expensive to fix. So I think from that standpoint, people have to be uh, prepared if they uh, once the vehicles themselves go out of warranty that it may not be as inexpensive to own as as a traditional um, gas powered car that needs oil changes and and fluid changes. Yeah, I think not only expensive to fix, difficult to fix, but hard to track these problems down. I think a, a lot of electric vehicles are probably quite reliable, and then you have the, that few that are really bad. You know, that have a, right. a major problem that's. Uh, difficult to track down within the electrical system. The owners might be a little pickier <laughs> about uh, you know their electric vehicle than if they had bought a conventional vehicle or that sure. conventional owners are about their vehicles. That might figure in a bit. I think uh, typically the survey da- data normalizes that a little bit. It's interesting, um, you know, what's good, what's not so good, and generally less reliable. Um, the top vehicle was a vehicle, actually, that's a North American Car of the Year, Utility of the Year uh, competition, the Kia EV6. It topped the battery electric with a, a score of 84. Interestingly, its sister ship, uh, the Hyundai Ionic 5, came in with 41 points, I mean, way, <laughs> way down the list. I mean, that's kind of a yeah. head scratcher, too, isn't it? Yeah, I, you know, I think, as you mentioned, I, a lot of these surveys are self-reported surveys, so it depends... You know, if somebody's not having a problem with a car, they're not as likely to flag it. So, but if somebody is having a a, a problem, they want to be heard. So, you could end up with some of these surveys being a little bit skewed. And as you know from your work with JD Power, people are things still work the way they're supposed to work. But if you don't understand how they work, they work. It's a problem. So you report it as a problem. So. I still think there's a lot of stuff that you're going to need to wade through. But that's not to say that you won't be surprised by, you know, the fact that most electric vehicles have a 12-volt battery system and you may need to replace the battery at some point. Or um, there may be some other motors uh, going bad or things like that, brakes. Uh, my owner's manual for the LEAF recommends a brake fluid change every 30,000 miles. And that's because you don't use the brakes as much on an electric vehicle. Brake fluid has the propensity to attract moisture and moisture can cause damage to your brake system. So yeah, uh, they, they recommend, you know, if you heat up the brakes, you boil off a lot of that water. That's one of those many things where uh, it's better to use the stuff than not use it, right? I mean, uh, if you yeah. don't use it, you lose it. Uh, you know, applies to a lot of things, and I think it it applies to electric vehicles too, or some systems in electric vehicles. They certainly have a lot of things like uh, heater motors and and that kind of stuff, and it's a bit different too. And uh, I think the technicians called in to work on electric vehicles have to be certified for these vehicles. They have a different set of skills, and uh, we don't have a ton of them out there right now, right? So. Right. We'll see what happens. Right. Time will tell on, on all these things. Right. Well, let's segue into uh, the thing we teased a little earlier, uh, this executive, uh, global executive, a pretty high-ranking global executive, I would say, is uh, the president of Toyota Motor Corporation, Akio Toyota. He says he's among the silent majority of uh, car executives who have a lot of questions of whether we should pursue electric vehicles to the exclusion of other types of vehicles. He thinks that 
maybe this is a, a difficult, much more difficult task than a lot of car companies are admitting. Certainly a lot of car companies are uh, gung-ho, all electric, uh, General Motors, Kia among them. Well, I think he's correct. I, I, I think the answer to this problem is all of the above. There will be a lot of electrification, a, a lot of pure electrics, a lot of hybrids, a lot of plug-ins, and a lot of regular old uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. And I think the problem is that a lot of these auto execs are saying these things to appease uh, government and Wall Street, and, and probably more Wall Street than the government, because they look at um, how Tesla's stock prices fared and everybody looks on EVs as the coming thing. So they don't want to look like an old brick and mortar stuck in the past manufacturer. So they say these things that they know they have no intention of meeting uh, uh, those goals. And in fact, Mark Royce, unequivocally president of General Motors, went on the record saying, we're not walking away from our internal uh, combustion engine business. So, which means pickup trucks yeah. and large SUVs. And it better mean pickup trucks. And at the same time, they are all over uh, television with EVs that aren't even for sale yet. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's and, what they're pushing. It's it's an interesting take, isn't it? It's, it's the auto industry's uh, way of virtue signaling uh, on EVs. And ultimately, it's up. It's in the hands of the consumers. You know, if the consumers aren't going to buy these things, they, they have to sell something if they want to stay in business. And, and it may be a hybrid and it may be a gas car. I mean, it is in the hands of the consumer. And I think in a lot of cases, it's in also in the hands of government. And governments are going a different way, as is frequently the case, than consumers go, right? So uh, right. consumers, I think, uh, left to their own devices would typically gravitate to the least expensive alternative, which is going to be a conventional gasoline-powered vehicle in most instances. Right. Um, but then uh, government is pushing them here in the United States with higher fuel prices, among other things, in, in a different direction. Well, and I think in the end, it'll it'll depend on, on the public's uh, willing to buy and car dealers, too. They're very important um, in the political realm. And I think, again, these pronouncements that these governments are making now are years and years out. As we get closer to the effective date, we'll see if they sing a different tune. Well, we have certainly seen that before, haven't we? Mm -hmm. Another thing that we talked about before the break was um, the EV tax credits. We've talked about that over and over again on the, on the show. And that has created a great deal of controversy because uh, the tax credits that we're used to are going away. And uh, there are no new rules in place to figure out exactly what the new tax credits are going to be. Now the Treasury Department, which apparently is in charge of setting that up, says, well, we're not going to have new rules until March, uh, which leaves people hanging for a quarter. This this can be pretty problematic, can't it, Matt? I think it will be. And I, I think one of the things it does do is it takes them away. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of cars that were eligible uh, for the tax credits that had them yanked out from under them uh, when the bill took effect in August. So any EV that's not built in the U.S. is no longer eligible uh, for um, the $7,500 federal tax credit, and even if they didn't hit that 200,000 sales limit, they, they you know, and, it, and the one that it hurt the most are the Koreans who have committed to build uh, uh, giant factories in the South to build EVs here, but they're not going to come on stream for at least two more years. So I, I think there's going to there may be some additional action coming early next year. 
uh, even with the divided Congress to address some of these things. Because if you think about it, the tax credits were designed to get electric vehicles into the hands of consumers. And now it's more a way of awarding certain manufacturers who happen to build their EVs in the U.S. They come in the Inflation Reduction Act, which has actually increased inflation. Uh, so it maybe is not surprising that they're doing the opposite of what they suggested they would do. Well, when we come back, we're going to be road testing some very cool vehicles, including a Volkswagen that doesn't get much play, the Ardeon. And I was driving the Acura Integra, the return of the Acura Integra. So stay with us for that. With Matt Lorenzo. this is Jack Newred with you. And thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Hi, this is Jack Newred, host of America on the Road. I'd like to tell you about my latest book, Dance in the Dark. It's a crime novel inspired by true crime. Many people have told me it is the perfect follow-up to Fatal Photographs, my true crime account of the notorious Hollywood bathing suit model murder case. In Dance in the Dark, Jason Griffiths is a rock and roll drummer turned computer programmer who fears for his life, but he doesn't know why. After living a quiet life for years, suddenly his girlfriend leaves him, he meets the most beautiful woman he has ever seen, and within days he's wanted for the murder of a drug cartel enforcer, a murder he didn't commit. The cops think he did it, though, and so does the boss of the cartel, so he's stuck between the law and the mob with nowhere to turn. The only person who might be able to help him is the new woman in his life. But will his stunning new companion be an asset or an enemy? And can he escape the desperate situation he's trapped in? Dance in the Dark is available in paperback and as a Kindle ebook at Amazon and at E.M. Lancey Publishers. Right now, it's at a special low price that will save you five bucks. That's Dance in the Dark by Jack Arney Red. Thanks for checking it out. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with guest host Matt Lorenzo, Jack Nyred back with you. We're so glad you're with us. Thanks so much for being with us on America on the Road. On our Christmas Eve show, I should mention that and go ho, ho, ho or something. I, maybe I should be wearing a Santa hat. Uh, but uh, thanks for being with us on uh, a show that is airing on Christmas Eve. You might be hearing it at a different time, but that's when the show uh, originally airs. Matt, it is in road test time. You are road testing a vehicle that I think doesn't get much attention, but maybe deserves a lot more. Tell us about it. Oh, it's the Volkswagen Arteon. It's, um, you know, if anybody asked me to bet on what one of the last full-size family cars, four-door sedans would be left on the market, I wouldn't have guessed it'd be a Volkswagen. I mean, you know, they're known for building econo boxes and fun to drive golf R's and, and even now SUVs. But in the Arteon, they have really a roomy, fun to drive family car that really despite it costing about $50,000, you get a lot for your money. It has an all-wheel drive, four-motion drivetrain. It's a, it's only a two-liter turbo, but it puts out like 300 horsepower and 295 pound-feet of torque. So it's got enough power to get it up and moving. But the great thing about it is that even though it does drive like a sports sedan, you get into the back seat of the thing, and it's it's like a luxury car. You have 40 over 40 inches of rear seat legroom, you drop the back seats down and it has a, and a hatchback and you get 56 cubic feet of hauling space. So the thing has the utility of an SUV in a package that has the road feel of a, of a compact sports sedan, which is really 
a rare combination. Yeah, I would say almost luxury sedan, even more so than family sedan, right? I mean, there's a lot of luxury features in this. This is one, I think the top of the line Volkswagen sedan in yep. the marketplace, certainly in, in North America. There's a lot to like about this vehicle, I think. Yeah, it, it, you get to the luxury content of it. It has like a Napa leather seats, heated uh, and ventilated front seats, heated outboard positions in the rear seats, a great infotainment system, plenty of bells and whistles in terms of driver assist and all in uh, all standard equipment. You know, and, and the thing that people forget is that Volkswagen built the the Phantom, which was this really terrific luxury car. And there's still a little of that feel that kind of that carries over into the Arteon. So it really is a rare bird. And I, you don't see very many of them, but it, it really is a, a great value for the money and gives off, you know, it's a sister vehicle to the Audi A7. So if you don't want to spend big bucks on an Audi, get the Arteon with the four motion. Yeah. Now it's a, a really nice vehicle. And of course I love the A7. I think most of us who like cars like <laughs> like the A7 a lot. And that kind of clone within Volkswagen, that premium feel that you get in the Arteon, I I think makes it a, a really good value. And, and you know, there's something nice about driving a sports sedan. I've been in a lot of three-row uh, SUVs, and, and then I've uh, been driving a few sedans recently, and it's just it's kind of nice to come back to that feel of uh, being in a sedan or a hatchback, isn't it? Yeah, you know, and, and I think the H point on a lot of these cars have been on, on the traditional sedans has been rising a little bit, so you don't feel like you're sunk down really low to the ground, so you get pretty good visibility out of it. And there's just something comfortable about driving these kinds of cars and, and actually taking other people around in them because, you know, they're not clambering over some seats to get into the third row or any of that stuff. It's just very straightforward, uh, comfortable, and very useful vehicle. I will say VW is um, – they, they're kind of gone overboard with the haptic touch controls. And I'm kind of an, an old curmudgeon. They do have a couple of switches in there, especially a radio knob and tuner things that, that kind of appease me. But I, I just don't get this touch thing where you have to look over to make sure that you're touching the right thing and engaging the right control. To me, that's a, a driver a distraction, whereas a, a traditional analog knob or, or a switch could do the job just as easily. Right. And sometimes with a haptic control or, you know, touchscreen, you don't get the immediate feedback. You don't know whether it's actually actuated or not. Right. Like if you grab a volume knob and turn it to the right, you know the volume's going to go up or, you know, turn right. a tuning knob or something like that. You know how that works. Same with uh, heating and ventilating controls. But with all the haptic controls, it's like, well, did I do it or did I not? Didn't and I? then you yeah. start to look over and you're not sure. And it can be uh, even a safety hazard, I think. Yeah, I think so. You know, a, a kind of a distraction. The other the other kind of interesting thing is their configurable cockpit. It has, you can do up to 21 different ways to display the uh, everything from vehicle speed to uh, navigation maps and directions and audio system in that little uh, instrument cluster in front of you. So a lot of options. I think the thing, the key to being successful with the vehicle is to do your homework and set it up ahead of time before you head out on the road. I, I just wonder how many people use any of these configurable <laughs> systems. The vehicle I'm going to yeah. talk about in a second uh, has the same kind of thing. And I, I scratch my head and I go, I, I think a lot of these go back to the dealer three years later or whatever, and they've never been configured even close. It's just right. the factory settings and 
people might not even know they could have done that. That's right. So your thumbs up on uh, Volkswagen Ardeon, I certainly am. I think that's certainly one to look at, especially if you're looking at a sedan of around forty, fifty thousand dollars, like fifty thousand, maybe a little bit plus of that. Yeah, kind of a dying breed, but. It's a good one. Well, I'm, I was driving over the course of the weekend. It's still in the front driveway of my home, the Acura Integra A-Spec. It is the return of the Acura Integra after a long absence. I didn't realize how long the absence was, but Integra was one of the first Acura vehicles launched in 1986, back when I was at Motor Trend Magazine. It continued through 2006, and then it went away. When they went to Alpha Numeric, they had vehicles that were kind of similar to the Integra. They just didn't call them Integra. And now it is back. And I, I think, number one, that's a great thing. What's your take on just the return of uh, such a, a vaunted name? Yeah, I'm a big believer in names. I'm, I'm tired of alphanumerics or even just alphas, which was, it was the ILX was the car before this. And I, I, I think it adds a little bit to the character of the car. It's, right. it's good looking and I, I, I'm, I'm happy to see the name return. In this form, it is a five-door hatchback or liftback, as uh, what Acura calls it, not a hatchback, but a liftback, which is essentially the same thing. In the old days, it was more of a coupe or a, uh, a two-door hatchback, a little sportier maybe, but there's a lot to be said about uh, a four-door configuration in terms of interior space and just access, just what you were talking about with the Ardeon. Among the standard features is this uh, precision cockpit digital display. It is configurable, just as, <laughs> as we were talking about. It has Apple CarPlay, Android Auto ca capability. Uh, there is a wireless smartphone charger in this thing. It's got all the kind of tech features, and it's interesting that uh, you know that's what we talk about first, as opposed to the performance of this vehicle. <laughs> uh, but that that's kind of the headline news, is what does it got tech-wise? I think people look at cars in the same way they look at their phones these days. It's like, what are all the functions that are out there? Uh, the cool thing about this vehicle in uh, this form is it has special fascias. Uh, it has dual exhaust finishers, stuff like that, to set it apart a little bit from a, a styling point of view. It has 18-inch alloy wheels, a lot of trim in the A-Spec line. A-Spec is kind of their even sportier version of a vehicle that's pitched as being sporty anyway. It is also the first Integra with a turbocharged engine, which is interesting. They had always had high-performance, normally aspirated engines, very high-tech, and also kind of peaky. You had to get them up on the pipe at, you know, four or 5,000 RPM before you really got a ton of horsepower. Uh, the nice thing about uh, current turbochargers is they spool up pretty quick, and this has a lot of torque, fairly low in the rev band, so the drivability is quite good. 200 horsepower overall, almost 200 pound-feet of torque, 192 pound-feet of torque, but as I say, that, that torque is available kind of across the board. Here's something I thought was cool, too, and I, I want your take on that. Six-speed manual transmission. It's it's old school, and I like it. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I I think that, uh, and and I think so. There there may be some younger buyers who want that sort of engagement when they're driving, and I think that that's you know if you really want to go fast, racers have embraced the sequential shift, you know, almost automatic transmissions. But if you really want to enjoy driving a car. And, and feel engaged about it, learn how to drive a stick. And and I I applaud them for that. Yeah, I agree with you. Hey, even in traffic, it's not bad. I guess if you're old school like me and it becomes second nature again in, in seconds, and this is a very uh, easy to operate uh, six-speed manual. It also has rev matching. So you have that going. It has automatic rev matching. You don't have to be heel and towing the thing, which is 
uh, might be somewhat troublesome for some people. I mean, they certainly wouldn't do it in traffic necessarily. But even in traffic, as I did yesterday, I drove from uh, my house up to Beverly Hills and back. A uh, ton of traffic in Southern California. It worked just fine, so I liked it a lot. Uh, and the uh, performance is, is is really good. I wouldn't say it tears your uh, toupee off as you accelerate, but, uh, you know, certainly goes well and uh, all-around sporty. has a good sport tune suspension. They have fooled with the McPherson struts a little bit. They have an adaptive damper system. You know, it's kind of charting this up a, a, a bit to make it a little more sports-oriented. Uh, you've driven it as well. Uh, what's your overall take? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it ticks a lot of boxes. It's not wildly expensive either. It's the it's the entry level car to the Acura brand, and and overall, I the execution of the vehicle is is pretty flawless, and it's fun to drive and affordable. One thing they didn't do, especially in the A spec package, where you get the upper level radio, they have a tuning knob and a volume knob on the lower level audio system and then they take away the tuning knob on on the bigger one i was like why did you do that it's just uh, you know i'm a luddite i get it but i think you know having right and left knobs just seems to work and i'm kind of sad that that has not happened but this is the vehicle i tested i have the monroni right here this is what it looks like (laughs) monroni is in my hand and it was thirty-seven thousand three hundred ninety-five dollars. So not exactly cheap for a vehicle that's a, a whole lot like Honda Civic S, uh, but in a lot of ways uh, there's value there too, and a fun to drive vehicle. So I think we've got two winners in this segment: the Volkswagen Arteon. Look for it; it's out there if you're looking for a luxury sedan, and um, if you're looking for something even a bit sportier and maybe less expensive, the Acura from a, a premium brand, of course, the Acura Integra in A-spec form is another one to look at. So when we come back, we will be interviewing a great guest. And he looks like Matt Lorenzo because he is Matt Lorenzo. And we I think, a very interesting thing to talk with him about. So stay with us for that. With Matt Lorenzo, this is Jack Neerad. And stay with us. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Matt Lorenzo, Jack Neerad, back with you. And, uh, We have a special segment with Matt as our guest, and there was a piece that I read uh, fairly recently, and I I found it fascinating, and I shared it with Matt, and I I thought it's worthy of talking about. But before we get into that, uh, the first thing I want to do is uh, let Matt talk a little bit about his new book that's out there. It's a terrific book. Anybody who is considering an electric vehicle, and um, and especially if you're tight with your wallet, (laughs) <laughs> you need to have Matt's book. So, Matt, tell us a bit about it. Well, I I, I wrote kind of a how-to. It's called How to Buy an Affordable Electric Car and a, a Tightwad's Guide to EV Ownership. So in there, I, I, I basically go through the steps. I bought an electric car. I tell you how to shop for one, what to look for, all those kinds of tips, whether you should lease or buy, what sort of tax credits, which are constantly changing, uh, you can look for. And uh, a little bit about what to expect if you own an EV and everything from charging at home to charging on the road, going using these the public infrastructure. And I think it's important because the EV ownership experience is really a lot different than owning a regular gas-powered car. Everything from the driving of it, EVs re- uh, rely heavily on regenerative braking, which really affects the feel and the um, uh, performance 
uh, of the car versus a a, uh, a gas car where you end up coasting a lot or, or doing things like that to save fuel. Do you note a, a difference when you use regenerative braking in a particular way that you get more range, for example, and uh, in, if you use it a different way? Yeah, it's a, it's a way to build range. You can there's actually an, uh, a brake a B setting that makes the regenerative braking a lot more aggressive. And you can you can stretch it a bit, but they, they, that's the other thing too is you're basically buying a car. It's like buying a car based on the size of the fuel tank. You're gonna pay a, a range is 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 what dictates the cost of your car. So I bought the cheapest one on the market at the time, a Nissan Leaf had a 149 mile range. If I wanted to get the 225 mile range, it would have cost me $5,000 more. If you want anything with 300 miles of range and up, you're going to be spending $50,000 plus. You don't do that with a gas car. You know, you don't say, well, I want a 25 gallon tank and that, that car is going to cost me X amount of dollars more. So there's a lot of things to consider when buying an electric car. Um, even in the ownership thing, I just got my license or my, my license tag renewal in the mail. $500. And the reason it's so high is because you don't pay any road taxes with your, uh, by buying gas. So a lot of these EVs, you know, they say, well, I'm going to drive right by that, you know, that fuel station, I'll save all this money. Well, the government will always want their share. So you're actually, your registration fees for an EV are much higher uh, than they are for a conventional car. So, Although that is different in every state, I would imagine. And, yeah. you know, you and I live in the uh, grand state of California where they find a reason to charge you for uh, darn near everything. And uh, at, at some point, I think we're going to be taxed for breathing uh, because yeah. we do expel CO2 uh, on the uh, outflow, right? <laughs> but the thing is, as electric vehicles become a greater percentage of the vehicle fleet, it won't take long for state legislatures to figure out they're not collecting as much tax as before, and and they're gonna they're gonna hit the the electrics and even the plug-in hybrids. Yeah, some of them may carry higher uh, registration rates. But th these are all the little things that you just don't know about buying an electric car. And uh, I, I feel that that's one of the reasons for doing the book was to help educate the public on exactly what you're getting into if you decide to go electric. Right. And repeat for our listeners the name of the book. It is over my right shoulder here. Thank you. It's How to Buy an Affordable Electric Car, A Tightwad's Guide to EV Ownership. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, I think, yep. as well. Yep. Both uh, Kindle, Nook, and paperback. Yeah. So look for that. Uh, great book. Um, it's great reading, even if you're not thinking about it, buying an electric car right now. It'll, it'll give you a lot of perspective. So I heartily uh, endorse that that book by Matt DiLorenzo. Look for that. Well, here is the headline of the uh, story that caught my attention. It is rush to electric vehicles may be an expensive mistake, say climate strategists. And uh, this was written by Don uh, Pittis. I believe I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He's with CBC News in, uh, up in Canada. Oh, Canada. Interesting stuff all the way around. And the skepticism about electric vehicles is, is way different than the skepticism uh, you know I've shared here uh, mostly. Part of it has to do with the fact that 
going to electric vehicles maybe not enough, maybe is the wrong thing to do. Looking at EVs as a you know one-to-one swap for conventional vehicles isn't enough in terms of changing or, or keeping the climate uh, in stasis, which of course it has never been, but trying to do that. I found that fascinating, Matt. I mean, from the uh, 35,000 foot view, what's, what's your look at uh, this point of view? Because it's a fascinating one. I think there's two main takeaways from this thing. One is uh, reality is beginning to dawn on a lot of the EV proponents that it's the one size fits all answer to to our climate problems and getting away from fossil fuels and all this other stuff. So, you know, the mining, the extracting of lithium, the processing of these materials, the fact that a lot of it is done in China, um, the fact that uh, we may not have the electric infrastructure to, to power all these cars, it's going to be a difficult transition. It's not going to be simple. It's going to take a long time. My second takeaway is this is where we were going anyway, that whoever said we need to have cafe to get cars more efficient. And then all of a sudden, well, now cars, even though they're more efficient, they're getting more miles per gallon. We have to do away with with uh, gas, uh, gasoline and fossil fuels altogether. I mean, remember when we were trying to conserve fossil fuels and we were worried about running right. out of fossil fuels? Now right. the idea is just to turn our back on fossil fuels. It's right. fascinating. And I, I think this part, this is the this is the natural progression. So then EVs are the answer until they're not the answer. And the ultimate goal is really to restrict personal choice, personal mobility, they want everybody to take uh, mass transportation. Uh, there are things going on in Europe now where they're talking about filter zones where you can't drive your car across town. You can leave town and go on a road trip, but your car is going to be restricted to like a you know, 15 block area and you can't go across zones. And I, I think that it's it's there, there is a war on on uh, the automobile and on personal mobility. I, I and I don't think people get that. You know, it's funny that one of the the greatest aids in lowering our CO2 footprint has been the shift away from burning coal to natural gas. And now they want to get rid of natural gas because it is a fossil fuel after all. They want to get rid of natural gas here in California as a cooking fuel, you Correct. know, to use it as a heating and cooking fuel. fuel. I Correct. mean, it's absolutely a head scratcher there. You're hard pressed to think of anything cleaner to burn. Yeah. Well, and I and I said, uh, you know, what did uh, my favorite one is what did environmentalists use before uh, they were burning candles and it was electric lights. <laughs> right. So I, I, I just don't get this march towards the thing is that the answer to every problem seems to be no. Whatever you're doing now, whatever it is you have now, the answer is no. And that's really to underestimate the strides that have been made in making automobiles so much more cleaner than they were in 1970 when they passed the Clean Air Act. And and that's to say, I'm all for that. I, I think that they're doing a terrific job in, in reducing um, pollutants, uh, reducing carbon output and uh, increasing mileage. It, the, the industry doesn't get enough credit for what it has done. I, I you know, I, I drove a, a Hyundai Elantra the other day, it wasn't a hybrid or anything. It got over 40 miles per gallon. That's astounding. 
And I think that that's really one of the things that we should be celebrating rather than trying to figure out a way to get rid of something that is still on uh, a curve to improve and and uh, provide better performance and lower emissions in the long run at a cost that's affordable to, to most uh, consumers. Right. I just drove the new Prius, 57 miles per gallon. That's amazing. Uh, just, you know, as a combined number, just uh, blows you away. Also a good looking vehicle. Reasonably fun to drive, 200 horsepower, m- much more horsepower than before. Uh, better looking than before. And at the same time, as you say, not much credit given to that. And there seems to be this rush to EVs. And at the same time, I mean, and I, I, I want to get back to this this piece written uh, in CBC. One of the, the knocks against electric vehicles is the unsustainable cost and unnecessary damage to the environment. This is a, a quote or a, close to a direct quote from a guy named John Lorink who has written a, a book called Dream States about this whole issue. And he is a, a climatologist and, and climate expert who says EVs are not necessarily the answer. I mean, there's <laughs> potential nightmares from that. Part of it is from uh, electricity being created or generated by fossil fuels. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things, too, that hasn't been addressed is is we did have clean energy in, in uh, nuclear power and um, hydropower, they're taking dams out now. So I, I just don't, the, the whole sustainable thing isn't very sustainable in my estimation. I really think it's a threat to our current way of life. I mean, I, maybe I, that's uh, an exaggeration, but really not. If you are not allowed to travel where you want to travel, as we become used to, get in the car and zip off wherever, and uh, nobody knows the difference. If you are restricted in where you can go, what you can drive, uh, what you can afford to drive, I mean, it it changes our lifestyle pretty significantly. And I think a lot of people actually would like that to happen. They, They think our current lifestyle is wasteful. They don't like it. And they want to impose that upon everybody. And I, I just... I can't believe Americans are going to stand for it, but we've we've stood for a lot of stuff I didn't think we were going to stand for, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we went through the COVID lockdown, so I don't know. We'll see what the future holds. Right, right. Well, uh, when we come back, we will have a listener question, and I think it'll be on a, a little bit lighter topic than this one. So with Matt Lorenzo, this is Jack Redden. Thanks so much for being with us. Stay with us through the break, and we'll have that listener question for you. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road with Matt Lorenzo, Jack Murad, back with you. Unfortunately, Chris Teague could not be with us, but Matt has filled in and done a marvelous job, both as our, our guest and our co-host on this show. So thanks to Matt for doing that. Uh, here, I think, is an interesting question. This is listener question time. Uh, and this is from Kelly in Pueblo, Colorado. Kelly says this. I, I'm not sure whether Kelly's a girl or a guy, but could be either. Uh, I'm not sure what Kelly identifies as, Uh, but here's the question. Uh, It seems like what you guys do is a lot of fun. How did you get into writing and reporting about cars in the first place, Matt? Well, uh, you got to get into writing first. I think that that's one of the things I I went to. I worked on a high school newspaper, took journalism in college, worked for a daily newspaper, and I I think that's great. I mean, I I love writing. I I like reporting. Um, but it's even better when you get to write something that you're passionate about. And, and I'd always been 
a tinkerer on cars and hanging around car people and going to races and going to car shows. And I, one of my my favorite memories is going to the 1970 Chicago Auto Show, you know, and and uh, and just walking around and looking at stuff and just being you know, t- uh, taken away by the by the cars and the, the culture. And I've been fortunate. You know, I started actually writing in the trades. I wrote for uh, a fleet magazine and I wrote for Automotive News, which is sort of the industry Bible. And then I got my break to do more general enthusiast writing at Auto Week. And um, that was great because it covered racing and covered auto shows and whatever was happening in the week. Um, and then I, uh, my my dream job was working at Road and Track, which was a a, a monthly uh, car magazine for for enthusiasts. And and so I, you know, my my view is also, and this is the great thing about writing about something you love, is that you'll never get bored. If you get bored writing about cars, it's your own fault. <laughs> There's science, there's government, there's, you know, um, the driving, there's racing, there's design. It's like art, you know, uh, design really. And and you'll meet some of the most fascinating people in the world from car designers to engineers to um, titans of industry like Bob Lutz. And it's just really uh, it becomes part of your life. It really defines you as um, what you who you are and what you do. And yeah. so I don't, you know, I, I theoretically retired from Kelly Blue Book last January, but I'm still writing about cars. And, and, I, and I think that's great that you don't have to stop doing what you, what you love uh, when your official career is, is more or less over. So Yeah, absolutely true. And your career is far from over, Matt, and you have this wonderful book, How to Buy an Affordable EV, uh, is out there. So look for that from Matt Lorenzo. I'd also like to plug my book. Um, My newest book is called Dance in the Dark. It's a crime thriller. It's inspired by true crime. Uh, The cover looks like this. I think it's kind of a cool cover. I'm holding up up to the microphone for all you radio listeners. And so look for that uh, on Amazon. Uh, Our our, uh, show, of course, is available as a podcast. So look for it on the SportsMap radio website at your favorite podcast outlet. If you like it, pass it along to people. You know, like it, please. Uh, give it a review, a positive re- review if you like it. And uh, join us again next week right here on at this place for another edition of America on the Road. Hi, this is Jackie Rad, host of America on the Road. I'd like to tell you about my latest book, Dance in the Dark. It's a crime novel inspired by true crime. Many people have told me it is the perfect follow-up to Fatal Photographs, my true crime account of the notorious Hollywood bathing suit model murder case. In Dance in the Dark, Jason Griffiths is a rock and roll drummer turned computer programmer who fears for his life, but he doesn't know why. After living a quiet life for years, suddenly his girlfriend leaves him, He meets the most beautiful woman he has ever seen, and within days he's wanted for the murder of a drug cartel enforcer, a murder he didn't commit. The cops think he did it, though, and so does the boss of the cartel, so he's stuck between the law and the mob with nowhere to turn. The only person who might be able to help him is the new woman in his life. But will his stunning new companion be an asset or an enemy? And can he escape the desperate situation he's trapped in? Dance in the Dark is available in paperback and as a Kindle ebook at Amazon and at E.M. Lancey Publishers. 
Right now, it's at a special low price that will save you five bucks. That's Dance in the Dark by Jack Arney Red. Thanks for checking it out.